Good morning, brothers. It's my privilege to introduce my colleague, Richard Reeves. When Richard first spoke here at Amen about, Richard, two years ago, about two years ago, he was, uh, he wasn't new to Memphis, but he was back after being gone in stints in Mississippi and Colorado planting churches, and he had been called by Second Presbyterian to plant a church in downtown Memphis. And three weeks ago, on October 3rd, they began having services. When Richard spoke here two years ago at Amen, I listened, and after hearing him speak about the imperative that Jesus has for reaching our city, for serving our city, for expanding his kingdom in our city, and especially among the poor, I called Sandy Wilson, and Sandy was scheduled to preach the following Sunday night at our service here. And I said, Sandy, you know what? Our congregation needs to hear what Richard has to say. And I'd like to bump you, Sandy, and put Richard in. And Sandy said, are you sure about this, Mike? I said, Sandy, you tell me after you hear me. She said, okay. And Sandy said, you were right. So I am excited to have Richard here again to speak to all of us here at Amen. Richard, thanks for coming. Come on up, buddy. Good morning, and thank you for that. Um, yeah, I'll never forget that phone call either. I said, what? Are you sure? Uh, I had the same reaction, but really enjoyed it. It is good to be back with uh, you men on this morning. Um, so I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. I think that it's interesting what God calls you to throughout your life, no matter what you do, but when you're a church planter, um, a minister of the gospel, it's interesting to watch how he transforms you in the midst of doing his work in his world. And uh, I've been on a journey for uh, many years now, um, converted as a sophomore or freshman at Christian Brothers uh, through the ministry of Independent Presbyterian Church went to Reformed Theological Seminary, planted a church in Olive Branch, Mississippi, was there 10 years. Uh, God moved me out of there uh, to plant a church in Fort Collins, Colorado. I never dreamed I would live in Colorado, and once I lived there, I never dreamed I would leave Colorado. Um, but God called me to come back home, uh, to come back to Memphis, and and began a church not because I'm an expert in race relations <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, uh, not because I'm an expert in urban ministry or poverty, um, but really to use my journey, um, what he wanted to do in and through me, uh, exposing my own sin in the process of planting this church, um, using a very crooked and broken man to, uh, I hope and praise, strike a straight blow for his work in his kingdom. And that's exactly what's happening. It's been a, a very humbling uh, task. I've learned more than I can uh, possibly uh, ever uh, communicate. 
And I've done so simply by moving toward the weak and the broken. And this morning, uh, or, or let, me, let me say one more thing. Uh, another thing that God has had me do is go back to his word and to see how integral moving toward weak and broken people uh, and viewing myself as more weak and more broken, <laughs> how integral that is to every aspect of his word. And we can go back to Genesis. I'm actually preaching the first few chapters of Genesis on Sunday mornings at Downtown Prez uh, because I believe it's, it's, it's foundational. Uh, this call to go to the weak and the broken is foundational to who we are as creatures made in the image of God, um, as men and women created in his image and called out for a very distinct purpose, a created purpose. And that's what I want to look at this morning. So uh, I've had to, to broaden my theology and broaden and, and deepen uh, what has already always been there. And that's what I hope to help us with just a little bit this morning as we go back to uh, a very familiar and, and fundamental uh, aspect of God's Word. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 26. Now, you know, God has, has created all things except for mankind. And so we come to the very height, uh, the crescendo of His creation. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now go to chapter 2 and verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And then verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, we come before you this morning and we pray that you would receive glory and honor. We pray, O oh God, that you would be the one that would go to work this morning, that you would be the one that would speak into our hearts and our lives, create in us a new heart, O oh God, create in us a steadfast spirit. Renew us by your Holy Spirit, O oh God. Invigorate your people to see life differently than we did before we walked into this room. O oh Father, give us the boldness to repent and the boldness to walk by faith, not having to know where the next foot will land, but knowing that it is ground that you have made. It is ground that you have called us to. And you are good, and all you do is good. Father, you know my sin. You know my weakness. You know my brokenness better than I know it. It cost you your son to have me 
as your son why you have called me to be a preacher of your gospel maybe one day i'll know but all i can know now is what you've said you choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak to shame the broken or the strong so i pray right now that you would do just that astound us by your power astound us by your intellect astound us by your word And may we never be the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I preached um, City Serve Weekend on a Sunday morning here at 2nd. And I told the story of Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy is a young man who is in his senior year of high school at Booker T. Washington here in Memphis. Uh, He went on a a trip with me and some others uh, to a youth camp in Colorado when we came back, I, I brought he and the others, other students to my house for a cookout, and, uh, and I had them write thank you notes to those that supported us financially and helped make that trip possible. Uh, he was struggling doing that, and it turned out that he is on about a second-grade reading level as a senior in high school. What I didn't tell you that morning is that states actually use third-grade literacy tests to determine the future populations of prisons in their state. Jeremy is heading in that direction. I told you about Mark, a 40-year-old man who, like so many men in the inner city, grew up hustling. He used who he had to use. He did what he had to do to get by. He spent seven years in prison, got out, He's not homeless because he lives couch to couch. He's a man that smokes marijuana just to dull the pain of the failure of his own life. I told you about Susan, who's in her 30s, a single mom of six. The world has seemed to pass her by, and she's not going to make it alone. I told you about the eighth grade student, Shalonda, repeatedly raped by her uncle, but there's no one there to stand up for her and to provide a way out. There's Brittany, who's 16 and just had her first baby. There's Tevon, whose parents are crack addicts, and he lives in utter poverty and utter neglect. But let me also tell you about someone else that lives downtown, someone else that lives in our city. His name is Mark. His parents taught him to excel in life. They provided him the best education. They put him in Little League from as early as he can remember. When his grades faltered a bit, there were immediate tutors hired. There were meetings ordered with teachers. He was taught how to speak to adults, how to carry himself socially, how to excel, how to exceed. He traveled the world. He went snow skiing in the winter, water skiing in the summer. He went to the finest camps. But somewhere in the process of being made and and made to be better, he was convinced that he was better. And whereas charity and volunteerism were stressed, the whole notion of laying his life down 
for other people, of being weak that others might be strong, of dying that others might live, somehow there was a disconnect between excelling and competing and living this kind of life for Jesus. Certainly that was for other people. Dear friends, this is our city. We're broken. But we are called to be the people of God and to build the city of God. And it's no different Moses is writing the book of Genesis to his children. They have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They have been wandering about the desert for 40 years. They're not really prepared to go in and to build a city, the city of God. And yet this is what God has called them to do. Moses is not going to be able to go in because God is forbidding him to. And so he's writing the book of Genesis to prepare them. He's not just giving a history lesson, but he's saying, this is what you must know and you must believe if you're going to be a city builder. If you want your city to reflect the kingdom of God, if you want your city to stand as a light on a hill to the world for the glory of God, these are the things that you must know. And two of the most fundamental teachings that he gives from the very beginning are these two. You have to know who you are. You have to know what your identity is rooted in. And you have to know your purpose. Very fundamental. Let's look at those two things this morning from these passages. First of all, we need to see that we possess inherent worth. And that is great news to broken men. When I was 19 years old, I was hired to be the athletic department supervisor at the university club here in Memphis. Uh, And what that meant was I was the supervisor of those that were working in the locker room uh, and also those that were uh, working the clay courts, the Rubico tennis courts at the university club and also the lifeguards during the summer. Now, 19 years old, I, uh, I was managing men and women two times, some three times my age. I was not cut out to do that kind of work. I was horrible at it, and I eventually got fired. I'll never forget the day that I got fired. I think I, 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 think I thanked my boss, who was a good friend of mine. We went to church together. I think I thanked him. Because I was working as hard as I could possibly work, but I wasn't doing the job. I was put in a job that I really couldn't do. I wasn't made to do. Those were not my my gifts and abilities. And so what I found myself doing over time was working and working and working and overworking and seeing no fruit, doing a worthless job, but feeling worthless. And what I learned from that, looking back for years now, is that there is a deep connection between job performance and how you feel about yourself. And that's dangerous. You see, it's dangerous to define yourself by what you do because we're not always, and maybe 
for many of us, if not most of us, we're rarely going to excel at doing what we do. And here's the problem. When you define yourself by what you do, and what you do is not fulfilling you, then you feel worthless and you begin to act in a worthless manner. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had an unproductive day at work and gone home and had a very unproductive conversation and relationship with your wife? (laughs) Have you ever walked into your house feeling worthless and because of that, she's the one that gets the brunt? Your children are the ones that, that get your isolation, that get your quietness, that get your quick temper. You see, what you've done is you have defined your worth based on your work and your duty and how well you've done, and you treat everybody around you like that. Planting this church in downtown and and moving toward not just those that live on the bluff or the island, but those that live in uh, the third poorest zip code or one of the poorest zip codes in our country, I'm having, I have new friends And what I'm finding is that many of my new friends have lived in generational poverty. And they don't like it. As a matter of fact, they feel very worthless. And many of the problems that that come from that are just fed over and over and over and over again. It doesn't matter how many programs are available. It doesn't matter what they're being invited to. It doesn't matter what is there before them. They can't make that step because they feel worthless because they have defined themselves based on what they can't do, what they don't know, and what they have done. Because in a real sense, society has done that. It's hard to get a job when you have two or three felonies on your record. It's hard to get a job even at McDonald's if you don't have a driver's license. And if you have so many offenses, I've talked to some that, that have driving offenses and or, or, um, they owe the court system thousands of dollars simply because of parking tickets and speeding tickets and they can't get out of that hole and therefore they can't get a job and they feel worthless. Israel has spent 40 years in the desert, wandering, living off of God's welfare, if you will. (laughs) They wake up in the morning, the man is on the ground. They don't have to do anything. But, of course, they get tired of that and they complain, and so then they live not only on the manna but also on whatever the wind blows in, like quail, you know. They don't even have to have to think about where they lay their head at nights because they follow the the cloud by day and the fire by night. They don't even have to think about where they're supposed to live. They're just following God around the wilderness. Forty years. They begin to complain. God becomes about them. Their little kingdom begins to shrink and they try to fit God into that little kingdom and make him about them and their prayer lives are more about give me food than thy kingdom come thy will be done their anxiety level is is more tied to their own protection and safety in life and their own health as opposed to conquering the nations for the glory of God 
they're, they're, the size of God's kingdom has been shrunk to the size of their own fears, and they're paralyzed, and there's no room for anybody else. And friends, when our kingdom, when the, when the glorious kingdom of God shrinks down to, to, to our little kingdom, to the size of our little kingdom and our little concerns and the fears that, we, that drive us on a daily basis, everybody gets squeezed out, including God. And everybody who exists, including God, to serve us. And it's his job to make us comfortable. It's his job to give us a job. It's his job to make us successful. And we miss it. There was a national crisis of identity. And what does God tell them? Then God said, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. The likeness of God. Do you know what Moses was telling his children? He was saying, children, we've had a rough 40 years. (laughs) I'm not going to even get to go in with you because I failed you. Instead of striking the rock once, I thought it'd be more theatrical. I thought if I added a little, uh, a, a little spice to the formula here, that, that it would excite you guys and make you more, you know, make you more obedient to God. So I struck the rock twice. It's not been a good 40 years. You've whined and complained. We've lost sight of God. And yet He's calling us. He's chosen us. We're his people, and he's not given up on us. Why? Because we are the ones that he has made in his image. And because of that, we have inherent worth. And what he was telling his children was beautiful. He was saying, your day at work and the last 40 years don't define you. This is the thing that defines you. You have been created in the image of the holy God of Israel. And you bear his mark above all else in creation. You carry that. And that's your worth. Self-worth precedes productivity. Do you believe that? Men, do you believe that? Don't let your day at work define you. Let the reality that God has imprinted upon you his image, and you are unique. Don't let the workplace, don't let your investments, don't let what people around you say, don't let the failures of your marriage, don't let the failures of reaching the poor in the city, don't let anything define you but the reality that you are uniquely created by God for God, and he has not given up on you. Have you given up on you? (laughs) But then secondly, because you and I have inherent worth, so do others. Now, in rebuilding the city of God, this is deeply important. Let me give an illustration. I was in my office Tuesday morning, and there's a homeless guy who washes windows that drops by all the time, and I'm just, I'm about... I'm just fed up with him, to be honest with you. I mean, I've just about had enough. Um, he, he's an alcoholic. I know he's an alcoholic, but he's smooth. 
I mean, he comes in talking about how he's going to AA, and I mean, his eyes are bloodshot, and I'm smelling alcohol, and I'm thinking, what, what are you doing, you know? But I, I listened to him, and well, this morning, I just, I didn't have a lot of patience Tuesday morning. Um, and he walked in, and I, before he even got to my desk, I just despised him. And, and maybe it was because of that, or maybe it was because I'm a little hard of hearing. I misunderstood what he said. I thought he said, have you seen my cleaning supplies, my window washing cleaning supplies? And I'm thinking, oh, what is he going to do now? Accuse me of stealing his, you know, supplies, and I'm going to have to pay for it. You know, I mean, he's thought of everything in the book. I mean, this is a new one, but now this is really getting personal. And, and so I just I quickly turned at him. I said, what are you implying? And boy, he started by, I mean, I was mad at that point. I was just not having a good morning. And, and then I realized, now wait a minute, did I hear him right? I said, what did you say? He said, no, 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 did you see me washing your windows the other day during y'all's Bible study when you were in your office? And I said, oh, oh, oh. And I felt about that small. And then I remembered this whole reality that he is a man behind the whiskers, behind the smell of alcohol, behind the worthless life that he lives. He is a man made in the image of God. And he is of utmost value. And who in the world do I think I am condemning him? I had to apologize. Drew Angus is a friend of mine who is a nurse. He tells the story of being in nursing school when, uh, and working in a hospital when um, a homeless man was brought in. And before they could even assess the issues, the problems with him, they had to clean him up. He was just so bad. And so um, Drew was in nursing school. He was the low man on the totem pole, so he was the one that had to, uh, had to get the man cleaned up. He said he literally had to cut his clothes off of him. And then bucket after bucket of warm water and soap. He scrubbed on this man. He shaved this man's long, scraggly beard. He, he nursed him physically back to some semblance of, of sanity, if you will. And I've always thought that was a beautiful picture of what we have to do sometimes to see the image of God in some people. But even though it may be hidden... It's there. Even though we might not see it, it's there. And you know, it's interesting. I've talked to, to people living in poverty, and, and I've asked a number of people, what is your perception of the church in Memphis? And I have to say, it's not very good. <laughs> you see, the poor have to do a lot of scrubbing to see the image of God on us. I don't know if you read the article in the paper. It was actually a, a, a good article for the most part, uh, written by David Waters in the Commercial Appeal about our, our church. And Ray, who's a good friend of mine, I'll mention toward the end of the sermon, our message this morning, he has this quote. He said, When I first saw Richard Reeves, I thought he was another wishy-washy white guy. There's really a price to pay when you start moving toward the weak and broken because we've neglected the weak and broken for so long. 
we have to allow them the time to see the image of God in us again (laughs) because of the past. But friends, we must believe that the image of God is around us in the poorest, darkest neighborhoods of our city. Because city builders have to see the poorest, darkest places. Why? Because we have work to do. Not only do we possess worth, and not only do those around us possess worth, but we have work. We're not unemployed. What do I mean by that? A year and a half ago, I was sitting in a restaurant with um, a guy I'd met downtown, and I kept getting all these texts and ran, or phone calls from random numbers. And I just met this guy, and I wanted to get to know him, and um, I was ignoring all of my calls and texts. And finally, my neighbor texted me and said, if you get this, you, need to, you really need to call me. So I called him, and he said, Richard, I don't know if you've heard this, but your house is on fire and the fire department is here. Uh, you know, if you, that, that's one of those calls that gets your attention. And then I heard, I heard all this commotion in the background, and I heard somebody say, ask him if his dog was in the house. And I don't know why that question made me realize how that this was serious. <laughs> this wasn't a little, you know, fire in the corners in a closet somewhere contained. Uh, this was serious. And so I rushed home. Most bizarre thing I've ever experienced. Uh, to leave your house, everything in its place for the most part, uh, a place that feels like you, that, that looks like you, all the pictures of you and your history and your family and your children, it tells your story. It's a place of rest, a place you come to to crash, a place when you shut the door, you, you, you take the garage door down. It's a place, it's a safe haven. And it's now being invaded. <laughs> There's water dripping from the ceilings. There are images of what used to be, but it's not what it used to be. It's destroyed. God created his world, and it was a place of beauty. It was a place of rest. It was a place where he created a man and a woman to to fit into and to work and care for it. And even that was rest. That was invigorating to some degree, to a great degree. And yet, Genesis chapter 3 comes along And his creation encounters destruction. And God had to shift, if you will. And he was ready for it. And it was a shift from creation to restoration. That's what we had to do in our house. Immediately, it wasn't walk away, forget this place, let's get out of here, but it was How can we rebuild? How can we put it back together? Maybe even better than it was before. How can we restore it? And all of our energy went into that. Friends, that is what God has called you and I to do. That is what he created us to do. 
He made us to be productive. He has called us to work and care for his garden as we see. He's called us to go into his world and the work that he's called us to do is to join him to be employed as his workers in his kingdom building and restoring his creation. And at the very height of his creation, as we see in Genesis 1, is the creation of man. And what we see in him sending his own son is he is not only redeeming the physical earth, which he is, and we get that, but he is redeeming a people for himself. And when Jesus gave the Great Commission, it, was, it had context when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, he was going back to Genesis 1 and 2 when God said, go into the, all the world and work and tend and care for my glory. Make sure everything is in its place that I might receive the glory that I deserve. And in that you will find great uh, um, satisfaction and in that, you will find great purpose. And isn't that what we're all looking for? And isn't that what we're all lacking? Dear friends, God has called us to go to the broken. As I looked at my house, the first thing I assessed was, what need, what is the, where is the heart of the brokenness? And what does, what does not need my attention? Think about it. In your business, what are you constantly dealing with? The areas of brokenness. Think about in your marriage, in your relationship with your children. You're moving toward the brokenness. In the work of God, in, in restoring His creation, in bringing people to Him, we must go to the most broken parts. And it's interesting, that's precisely what Jesus did. He is constantly moving toward the weak and the broken when he goes into his city. He stops when it, his, his disciples wanted him to teach and to gather the masses. And yet he sees a woman who has just lost her, her only son. She's a widow. She has no other hope in the world. Her husband's gone and now her son is gone and she is destitute. And Jesus said, now is not a time to teach. Now is a time to model. <laughs> and he moves toward her. And he raises her son to life. He's constantly moving toward the blind and the lame. He's touching lepers. He's going to women that, that the culture has passed by. And he's receiving constant criticism. And friends, that's what God has called us to. He has called us to go to the weak and the broken to bring restoration to the city. Ray Charles is my good friend. Over a year ago, he was addicted to crack cocaine. He was the guy that we would pass by on the street. He's the guy that we would give up on. He's the guy that would really stand for everything that we're against. He hadn't worked in seven years. He wasn't caring for his own son. He was mooching off of 
can't even say his wife, his baby's mother. He was every stereotype that we've ever had. And yet, God came crashing into his life because people took note of him. Someone just had the common decency to stop and invite him to a job training class at Advanced Memphis. And God used that one little invitation to spark interest, and he was there. (laughs) And he completed the class, struggling with his drug addiction, struggling to get up in the morning, struggling to get out the door. But he completed that class. He graduated. The last week of his graduation, he goes into the office of... Steve Nash, and he says, something's just troubling me, and I really don't know what's going on in my heart, and I want to be freed from my drug addiction. And, and Steve said, well, let's just pray. And in the middle of that prayer, God converts him. You see, God is at work when we are not. It is his kingdom. He's not calling us to change Memphis. He's calling us to be employed by him in his work of changing Memphis. You see, it's his company. We're not the CEO. It's The burden is not on our shoulders. But the joy of serving and being a part of what he's doing is. And so he's calling us as men to move in, to move toward the weak and the broken, to go to the nonprofits, to, 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 to move toward the places that are moving in that direction, saying, I don't know what in the world I'm doing here. I just know this is where I'm supposed to be. Help me, train me, teach me. Let me read what I need to read. Let me talk to who I need to talk to. Before I started the church, I spent over a year just listening. And one of the primary reasons that that I so value my relationship with Second Prez is because you guys have given me the opportunity to take time You guys gave me the opportunity not to say, we want a church up and running in six months. You knew the gravity of the work and the weight of the work, and you said, take your time. And I sat down primarily with African-American men and women, some that lived in poverty, and I said, tell me what it's like. Tell me what it's been like to live in Memphis, Tennessee. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your deepest hurts. Tell me about what you value. And dear friends, in the midst of that process, there are not many lunches, there are not many coffees that I didn't walk away with tears streaming down my face, feeling very small and yet learning much, allowing them to lead me into repentance in a way that I didn't even know I needed repentance. See, here's the reality. You are not the answer to the world. Jesus is. (laughs) And so what he's doing is he's wanting to change us as much as he's wanting to change anybody else because we are the weak and broken. But he uses the weak and broken to convince us that we're weak and broken. When was the last time you moved towards something consciously that you were not qualified and you were not trained and you didn't feel comfortable to move into? That's why he calls us into his kingdom, into his vineyard work. Because we have to be trained by him. We have to look up. 
And Paul said the Christian life is lived by faith from first to last. When was the last time you lived by faith? When was the last time you stood before somebody and you thought, I don't know what to say. This person's problems are bigger than mine. I'm scared to death, maybe for my own life. I feel small. I feel ill-equipped. I feel stupid. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is the one who is our paraclete? And you know what that word means? When, when, when Jesus promised his spirit, he said he is the one who hears and meets the cry. Do you know why you haven't felt the power of God in your life. It's because you haven't gone deep into your own weakness. You haven't moved out somewhere where you needed to cry out to God. When was the last time you, you were in a situation where you needed God to work in another person's life? Dear friends, that's when God shows up. That's where Jesus is. He's among the weak when we're willing to be weak. He's among the broken when we're willing to be broken. Do you see it? And so on that day, Ray Charles was willing to be weak and broken, and Jesus came crashing into his life. And then what do you do? Something told me to go talk to Ray. I saw him one day. We didn't know each other that well, but he was working, actually, at Advanced Memphis. And I walked up to him, and I said, Ray, you've just been on my heart lately. And I just want to, I want to invite you to be a part of this church that we're starting. And he turned around, he looked at me and he said, Richard, I have been waiting for you to ask me. <laughs> I mean, I think I started laughing. Are you kidding me? He said, I believe we would be a good team. And I think I'm the weakest link of this team. But I just began to walk with him. I began to learn from him. I began to understand a little bit more what it is like to live the life that he's lived, to be in prison. Why do you enter a gang? What does a gang provide? What is it like to be addicted to drugs? How do you live when you don't have a job for seven years? Where do you sleep? What, I mean, all of the questions that we'll, we all have. I was allowed to ask him, and he began to teach me. He was trying to get into school. Um, and the school was putting him off. He wanted to get in a mechanics program. The school was putting him off. I have a friend who happens to be in a position in Memphis that I thought he might be able to help him. I called my friend. Within 24 hours, Ray was receiving a phone call, and he said, Richard, I don't know who you know but I'm in school. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? He's at the top of his class. His, his teacher and his classmates love him. They tried to get him to run for um, vice president of his class, but there are a bunch of gang members in the class, and they kind of did their buddy system, and he backed out wisely uh, to kind of let them do their thing. He needed a job. Going to school, he's got to support his, um, uh, his child and his child's mother. Um, one of the members of our church was going to get their mail at, in their apartment, and when their neighbor approached them and said, Hey, do you know anybody who needs a job? I run a valet uh, parking business at the Marriott Hotel downtown. 
One phone call, Ray gets an interview, now he's parking cars and loving it. Using his giftedness, the way God has uniquely gifted him, to work and go to school. You've probably read in the papers that they're tearing down Claiborne Homes. And friends, I, I still don't know what I think about that because this story kind of throws a wrench in what I was thinking about that. God is sovereign. That's all I can say. Uh, but it's affecting a lot of people. It really, really is. Um, a lot of people that are in our body, our church body, are, are, have no idea where they're going to go, no idea where they're going to live. Uh, we're helping them in that process just as a community. Ray called me yesterday. They just moved into a three-bedroom house with a big yard. And his son, Rayzon, who uh, is like a son to me, I love him. Um, very unique, very gifted seven- or eight-year-old. Ray was out in the yard playing with Rayzon as they were just running around. And he said, Richard, I can now go to work and not have to worry about the shooting. <laughs> I can now go to work, and the burden of worrying, is my son going to get shot? Is he going to be around people smoking dope and shooting up in front of him right out our front door in Claiborne Homes? I don't have to worry about that anymore. You see, in that conversation, God humbles me and helps me look around and say, Wow. You've given me much, God. But he's also helped me look around and say, but to whom much is given, much is required. Ray doesn't have any furniture to supply a three-bedroom house. Uh, he doesn't have a couch. He, you know, he doesn't have much of anything. And he said, Richard, it doesn't matter. But I know God will use the people of our church and God will use me and God will use others to lay down our lives. And in the process, we're getting so much life. Friends, you are part of God's restoration project. Jesus sacrificed the life, the greatest the greatest one of the universe, that you might have life. But in so doing, he gave the pattern of how we are to live. Not as a burden, but as the place that we will find life. I've said this so many times, so forgive me if you've heard me say it and you think it's redundant. But I know as a man, I look for excitement. I, especially as a church planner, I look for the next hill to, to climb. You know, if I'd been in the military, I think I would have been that idiot that they would have put up front to charge the hill, you know. For whatever reason, that's just how God has wired me. Probably the biggest reality that God has taught me over the last few years is that this is the hill. <laughs> Lay your life down. As Christ has laid his life down for you, Richard, and watch me work in you. Watch me make you something that you won't even recognize because you're not the one that is, has done the work. And watch me work through you and reach to people around you and bring change that only I can do. And it takes me out of the picture 
And it's, it's exhausting sometimes. It's frightening. But it's what I've been looking for. I've run marathons. I've killed big deer, you know. I've killed my limit of ducks numerous times. I've done all, and I'm still doing that. That, that doesn't mean that we, we pull back necessarily from all that. Maybe it does. I don't know. That's, that's up to you and, and God. But this is the hill that we've been looking for. It's called the creation mandate. Go out into the world and be about what God is about. And he's moving among the weak and the broken. Would you be willing to be weak and broken and to walk by faith and to see him strike a straight blow, a straight blow with a very crooked stick such as you? God is not looking for your health. He's looking for your sickness. He's looking for your weakness. Bring that to him and let him work through it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning that you are a God at work. And you're a God at work in us. And you're a God at work in others. We thank you that you have made us to be image bearers. And I pray, O oh God, that we would go out into the world and we would believe it for ourselves. We would believe it for our neighbors we would believe that those living in poverty and drug addiction and prostitution or whatever that the addiction might be and those living in the addiction of materialism and self-righteousness and pride and arrogance, that we would see the restoration that needs to happen in them and that, Father, we would be employed by you. Send us out this morning, desirous of being part of of your work, walking by faith in weakness and trusting you on the other side. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have redeemed us by your blood, that you have made us righteous in the sight of God through your obedience. And thank you, O oh God, that we can lavish in your love knowing that we're yours and nothing can, nothing can separate us and nothing can condemn us. We rejoice in you this morning, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.